0: It is bittersweet speaking to you like this at year end. Once again, on Zoom, because the pandemic persists and thwarts our beginning efforts to resume in-person zazen at the zendo. And yet there's also something sweet, something I'm continually grateful for in the way that the pandemic has also been an opportunity to more directly connect to so many of you outside of New York and to really expand the boundaries of our Sangha in ways that we never would have done before. And I think that we have succeeded in creating a bigger Sangha a sangha of folks that know and interact with one another. It's not simply a bigger audience uh, for my talks, a bigger audience of people who simply are the passive recipients of what I have to say. but who are actively engaged in making an effort to find the time, often an inconvenient time, to sit with us in an ongoing, regular, committed way so that we get a sense of one another's presence and involvement and participation in this thing we call sangha. Sometimes the triad of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the Sangha is given short shrift and comes in a distant third in in importance, as if it was merely a group of followers or disciples, again, sort of. Recipients of the teaching. At best, maybe a peer group or support group. Who encourage one another to practice, to sit. But certainly in the Zen tradition, it's more than that. When Dogen talks about Zazen as the expression or the performance of our enlightenment, one of the things he's doing is taking the experience of meditation out of our heads as if it is simply a Cognitive kind of experience, a transformation of consciousness, and puts it back down into our bodies. Zazen reunites the apparent split between body and mind. It's a split that is an illusion. one in which we get stuck and we think that Zazen is a matter of our attention or concentration or equanimity, the absence of thought, all sorts of things that we can say about what goes on between our ears that we mistakenly identify as the essence of practice. But Dogen says, our practice is in our body, in our posture, as much as is in our head. And he goes further, because it's in our body, in the presence of other bodies. It's not solitary. Very fundamentally in Dogen, our practice is communal. Again, not simply in the the manner of supporting one another in our practice. But as the relational embodiment of our interconnectedness, our non-separation. mind has to go down and reconnect with the body. The body has to reach out and feel its connection with its world and with others. All of these things are essential, fundamental to the nature of realization, which is about the overcoming of separation at all these different levels. Some of you will be familiar with the work of the philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, who in a book called The Secular Age, described one of the cultural transformations that has taken place in the creation of what he's called the buffered self. what he means by that is our coming to take for granted or to take as common sense the idea is that we are separate individuals whose essential nature is internal to us and that meaning is something that we make for ourselves. Meaning is something we give to the world. We, as separate individuals, consciously or unconsciously, decide what matters to us, what we will invest our interest and energy and motivation in. We'll decide we want to practice Zen, or do we want to go to a synagogue, or do we want to go to the football game? what kind of person do we want to be is a a matter of individual choice and decision. And the dilemma there is also that it puts a great deal of burden and responsibility on an individual to sort of create, to be a meaning creator, to be a the source of what matters. And Taylor talks about how fundamentally different this perspective is from the one the people lived in for most of our history, in which meaning was something that was seen to be invested in the world. It was an aspect of the world that uh, we, we as individuals, were part of something that had its own logic, its own order, its own narrative. That what that wasn't of our creation we found ourselves in the middle of it and participants of it. And that could take many forms. You know, in in a place like classical Greece, it was taken for granted that the world was populated by gods, all of whom had their own distinctive qualities and agenda. And all this was going on and man as a whole, and me as an individual, were sometimes bystanders, sometimes collateral damage, sometimes trying to get in harmony with what was going on. But there was a whole cosmological narrative, a whole divine play in which we had a kind of walk-on part, right? It wasn't up to us to decide what was going on out there. We had to find our place in it. And even if gods were not personified, if you had a kind of philosophical perspective like that of the Stoics, the logos, reason, was an organizing force of the world. The world had its own distinctive logic and pattern and harmony, in which we needed which we needed to learn and try to become in sync with. And Taylor says it was a fundamental shift to. Move away from this idea that the world is something we find as pre organized, meaningful, whether by a divine plan or a logos or the competing narratives of polytheism, to a world in which. Basically, we're just a lot of isolated individuals who have to choose what kind of relation we're going to have with one another, what kind of narratives we're going to choose to tell or say matters, and how we're going to organize our own experience. And he calls this the buffered self and the idea that there's fundamentally a gap or a barrier between our inner world, our inner life, which where we think the real me resolves and other people and the natural natural world. And it's very interesting the way this kind of picture which he associates with uh, modernism and a secular age is a kind of picture of delusion that we get in... uh, Buddhist practice of the separate isolated self who loses connection, the connection between the mind and the body and between self and other. So certainly in Zen, practice in a Sangha is a kind of reenactment of the realization of our interconnection. In our tradition, we don't particularly valorize uh, the hermit, the solitary practice. I think there's some, certainly some traditions where it seems like the epitome of dedicated practice is to go off into a a mountaintop somewhere by yourself for years, practice in a solitary fashion. And certainly there's a whole tradition, in, hermit tradition in Chinese and Korean Zen. But certainly in Japanese Zen, and for, uh, for most of the history of this practice, the idea that Zen is communal and relational has been a big part of our understanding of what we're doing. Part of losing the self is, is the sense of losing it into, into the community, into the common activity, into shared functioning, to being together with others, such that our own individual likes and dislikes are not always center stage. I was thinking a little bit in terms of the uh, readings we've been doing in uh, the Vanderkoop book about uh, Body Keeps the Score. Uh, one of his descriptions of the sequelae of trauma is first how we have, in a variety of ways, the mind being split off from the body. Uh, This can happen in terms of dissociation or depersonalization. There can be strange dissociative experiences, you know, where people imagine themselves, you know, up on the ceiling or up in the air looking down at what's happening to their body. And I think Van der Koek even describes a situation where that happened to him when he was being mugged. He had that experience. And that so much of the the therapy uh, for for people who've been traumatized is intended to reconnect them slowly and carefully with bodily experience without re-triggering the experience of trauma. And he talks, for instance, of the value of gentle massage in a traumatized woman who just allows her to feel her body again because so much of the traumatic reaction is to dissociate from any kind of bodily experience. But there's another stage of traumatization in which an individual seems to sever their connection to uh, to other people in any meaningful way and just are experiencing everybody else as potential sources of re-traumatization. So he talks about how typical it is that a traumatized individual has trouble with eye contact. That too much direct contact with another, even visually, let alone being touched, can lead to a kind of immediate reactive cringe response. And that there's a safety sought in separation and isolation as a kind of drastic attempt at self-regulation, because the, the world of connection and being regulated by others has been shattered. And it made me think of, uh, or wonder about how much we, people who are drawn uh, to solitary practice, to the hermit life, to to deep silence, uh, are doing so in reaction to trauma and that they're doing so as a way to separate themselves from any kind of dangerous impingement and get themselves settled down again by themselves in in a silence that can be soothing. I thought of uh, Thoreau. and how he went to spend most of two years by himself, you know, in his hut at Walden for all sorts of uh, reasons having to do with wanting to explore a life of simplicity. But what I didn't know until I read some biographies that this also followed uh, the the sudden death of his brother by tetanus, the person he was closest to in this world, both the person he had done the um, trip on the Concord and Merrimack that he had written about in his first book, Uh, who was also a rival for the one uh, woman he would have ever uh, felt in love with. Uh, His brother cut himself shaving on a straight razor, developed tetanus, and died within a week. And Thoreau was uh, deeply traumatized to the extent that he developed hysterical symptoms of tetanus, where he went through a whole period in which he looked like he himself had developed the disease and was dying from it. But it was a kind of hysterical identification with what his brother went through. And then he went to live in a hut by himself. I can't help but thinking part of this is a kind of post-traumatic reaction. And the other example that came to mind was Thomas Merton, who not just sought out Trappist monasticism, but while he was there, kept longing for the life of a hermit. He wanted to become more and more solitary. Yet one of the things I learned about him reading the biographies, was that as a child he suffered horribly from loneliness? And in particular, his mother died when he was very young, but she died slowly of a chronic illness uh, and was hospitalized for a long time. And yet he was never allowed to see his mother or visit her during those illnesses. His father would regularly visit his mother in the hospital, but leave Tom as a little boy alone in the car for hours while he went up to visit his mother, who never never saw him before she died. And there was something about the so- horrible solitude of that that in a kind of strange, I think, post-traumatic way, he ended up gravitating himself towards and having the experience of finding God in that silence, a God who is always present and never leaving him, as a kind of... uh, antidote to the experience of uh, deep abandonment that he originally felt in silence. In any case, I don't mean these examples to make a uh, blanket disparagement of the hermit vocation, but I do want to use them to say something about how basic connection is to others in this practice. And it's the sense of reestablishment of connection through Sangha, that I think is um, a crucial part of what we're doing. Uh, It's an antidote to our fantasies of an isolated inner mind, a separate essential inner self. It's what we return to as we return to our body as a rediscovery of what has been there all along. That interconnection is as basic to what we are as impermanence.